You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Like so many things created in the early days of the pandemic, this was supposed to be a short-term fix. A way for Canadians returning home or foreigners entering the country to follow the government's strict COVID protocols, to provide contact tracing information and, sorry if I snicker a bit here, to streamline the border entry process. Two plus years later, the federal government's Arrive Can app is still doing all those things, and it is working even harder on the streamlining part of it. Passengers arriving at Toronto Pearson and Vancouver International Airports can now use ArriveCan to complete customs declaration forms before landing in Canada. Due to a technical glitch with the ArriveCan app, a small number of travellers received an erroneous notification instructing people to quarantine. But why are we still using ArriveCan? Why is it still mandatory? What purpose does it now serve? Is it still for quarantines and contact tracing? Or is it now an attempt to modernize the border? Is it helping with the mess at our airports or hurting? Will we use this app forever? Will it always be mandatory? What does a looming September deadline mean for the future of our border experience and for Canadians' digital privacy? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Bianca Wiley is a technology expert. She's a partner at Digital Public and a co-founder of Tech Reset Canada. Hello, Bianca. Hello, Jordan. So for those who haven't traveled internationally during the pandemic, and I guess uh, I'm one of those, I think you are too, can you just describe what the Arrive Can app is? Sure thing. So I haven't used it myself, but um, it's it's an app that the federal government has made mandatory for travelers um, coming into the country um, to collect information um, because of the pandemic. That was the rationale for this app. So to collect information about who you are, where you've been, where you're going, your vaccine information, um, test information, if that's uh, related to your travel or to your history and your plans for quarantine, should you need to do such a thing. Right. So it's um, it's an app that's available both on for mobile phones, uh, or you can use the web app. Um, and that's that's what it's about. And that's how it's being presented. It's mandatory for people to use if you're traveling to Canada. What's it like? And why did you decide to start looking into it? So I had one family member who was considering travel, and they don't have a smartphone. And when they asked me about this, I could tell they were already kind of nervous about their trip. And this had added in sort of a a new layer of something that they were worried about. So I started to look into it then. Um, This is maybe three, four months ago. And a a friend of mine who traveled and used it got in touch with me and said, I use this app. I don't know what it was about. I don't feel comfortable that I used it. I'm not sure what's happening now. And so in both cases, it was people expressing concern and basically discomfort with this app. Um, in relation to their their plans. And so that's why I started to look into it. What does looking into it mean to you? Maybe you could explain a little bit about what you do in terms of tech and security and, and how you looked into it. Certainly. So 
I like to look at how we are using technology in our democracy in Canada and elsewhere. And what I mean by that is as we use you know, apps like this, say in the delivery of a public service, what does that mean for our governance? You know, how are we making sure that we're doing this in a way where um, we're, we're in control of how technology is used and how people's rights are respected or not? Um, making sure people are comfortable and making sure that we have access uh, to public services. Um, so that's really the focus for me. A lot of my interest in technology is on the public side. So when I started to look into this app, it was actually on the heels of we had this COVID alert app in Canada. Yes. Which was, yeah, a voluntary exposure notification um, app, also related to the pandemic. And um, my colleague, Sean, and I, from the beginning, had concerns about that app um, because historically that technology generally hasn't worked well. Hmm. You know, uh, you often hear concerns of surveillance, privacy, you know, data use, and those are all valid and important. But um, with the COVID alert app, the primary thing was, does this even work? Does this work? Because right now there's so much enthusiasm for technology. And sometimes people get really mired in the harms related to privacy, surveillance, and those issues. But we skip over this question of, does this work? Is this something we should be doing at all? And so having looked at that app and then hearing about this one, I started to sort of go down the same road of what is this? How does it work? Does it work? And the first major red flag, of course, um, COVID Alert was a voluntary app. This is a mandatory app. That's a very rare thing to do for the government to say this is a mandatory use of technology. I think I've only found one more of those um, at Canada Post. Hmm. And so that red flag was waving around. And from there, um, I've just been looking into its history, issues with it, um, what's going to happen in the future, and primarily asking that the government move this to voluntary use. Let's talk first um, about the history before we get into how it's evolving, how it may or may not stick around, and definitely we'll go down uh, some of the red flags in terms of information. When we talk about stuff like this that's been around since early in the pandemic, I always like to add a caveat that like back then we didn't know what we were doing. We had to try things. We had to try to find solutions. So I try not to uh, discredit any government for trying to take action back then. I think it's totally fair game now, more than two years later to say like, what has this become instead of what it was intended to be? Like, how has this app evolved over the last couple of years? Yeah. And I'm nodding as you were talking about that sort of in a crisis, in a public health emergency, um, wanting to try things and knowing, hey, maybe this does or doesn't work, but let's give it a shot. I I empathize with that position. Um, I also think it helps us understand that this is actually experimental. Hmm. And I think when we consider it that way, um, we know that when you do experimentation, you also do have guardrails and you also do have methodologies for experimentation. And so when we go back to the beginning of the story here, very interesting on a few fronts. One of them is that the rationale for this app and its use is actually sitting in the Quarantine Act, and it's still sitting there. So we need to remember that 100% the reason given for ArriveCan at the beginning was to support the implementation of the Quarantine Act. 
um, which relates to keeping track of people and keeping track of where they're going and making sure if they need to quarantine, they do so. Right. Contact tracing, back when we still did that stuff. That's right. And that intent and that um, desire for this to be collected, this information to be collected, was coming from the Public Health Agency of Canada, okay, at the beginning. So that is who was saying this is this is information we need and we need to um, implement the Quarantine Act. Now, here is one really important piece of history. The Quarantine Act says that we must collect information uh, you know, as a mandatory exercise. It says nothing about how. Hmm. It says nothing about having to use technology or having to use an app. And what it says is this is information that we are that we can compel from people. But it's interesting because nothing in the act said it had to be done through an app. So we need to remember we have had data collection happen at the border for a long time. And there are other systems we have in place that could have been used, you know, whether it's kiosks, forms, you know, um, interview with, with the border agent. Sure. Everybody's gotten those forms 30 minutes before their flight lands, right? People know how to do that. Right. So, so that was the beginning of this. And I think like most people, when you're told, you know, we're, we're, in, we're in an emergency, we need to do this thing. Although people might not have liked it, it felt like, okay, this is what we're going to do. This relates to this emergency. Okay. What we didn't have at that point in time was any conversation about what that app working really looked like from a public health perspective. And this is going to come back later. So when it was launched, it was through, you know, and still is using the Quarantine Act for a public health rationale. Over the course of time, it has shifted and the language has shifted. And now we're at the point when you look at the app today and the website um, that Canada Border Services Agency is talking about border modernization, which is a very different exercise and a very different use than pandemic rationale. And another really interesting piece of history that surprised me um, when, when I found out about it ArriveCan was existing before the pandemic. We also had um, customs. We had an app that would allow you to clear customs um, by using, by filling in a form online or a mobile app, very similar functionality. And so we had some of this going on before the pandemic. It wasn't widely used. It was voluntary. Then we have the pandemic. We've got mandatory use. And you can see how these two very different rationales have now come together into the same piece of technology. And so I think the way I've been thinking about this lately is that there, there is an interest, and some people like this app, and we need to talk about that too. There's an interest from the government, there's an interest from some people you know, that live in Canada, visit, that this is great, that they like ArriveCan, mm -hmm. which is part of border modernization. But that is not the way in which most people started to use it. They were using it and are using it because they have to. So if you think about this as sort of training people and using this moment to get people using this app that they weren't using before, um, to me, this is not good governance. You don't mix and mingle these things, regardless of whether they're defensible independently um, so, yeah, so I think those are some interesting pieces of history and we can talk about the Quarantine Act because it's really important um, in relation to the data that's collected. Maybe first, because we're about to get into privacy and security, 
What data is explicitly being collected? What is the government doing with it? Are they getting rid of my quarantine plans after the two weeks would have theoretically expired? Like, what's happening there? I don't know the fine print. I know that there's the, the, the privacy commissioner looked at this app. They were asked to review it. Um, I know that it's collecting pretty standard stuff when you travel, right? Like your your own information, people within your travel party, places you're going as part of your plan if you need to quarantine. How that is being managed from a data retention and use perspective, I can't speak to the details. What I can say is that the privacy commissioner reviewed it all and said, this is as expected, no major concerns. Okay. However, there's also the fact that we have a black box here. We have closed code. We don't have governance around use to a certain point um, in terms of how things are being used now. When I say things, I mean the, the information that's collected. You know, I've had people tell me I showed their receipt and no one's really looking. Like mm-hmm. it's unclear how some of this is working in practice to me. So don't want to go too far down that road. But I think to, to get to your to your point and your question, um, nothing about the collection and use of the data was a flag for the Federal Privacy Commissioner when they reviewed it. And recently, the Federal Privacy Commissioner said that they were, you know, continuously working with the Public Health Agency of Canada and the, I think also the Canada Border Services Agency to basically make sure that they're adhering to best practice. That's as far as I've heard about data collection and use. What about closed code? You just mentioned it. What does that actually mean? And and why is that a red flag for you if it is? There's a few reasons closed code is an issue in, in, in this case. So personally, I'm an advocate for transparency and accountability. Mm-hmm. And so it's one thing for the government to tell us this is how this works. Or to, to say, well, a contractor may have access to your data because they work on it. So in, in the ArriveCan case, we've got five private contractors that have been working on developing the app and maintaining it. Hmm. So when I say closed code, what I mean is the way the software works is not open for anyone in the public to audit or to review. And this you hold in contrast with what was happening with COVID alert, where there was open source code, it was available, anybody could look at it. So you could have a sense and you could have sort of some third party and some oversight in terms of how it all worked. So to an extent that's important um, to have it open if possible. There's also a reality here when we talk about software code and technology that if you can't see the whole system, you can't really know the full story. And what I mean is, even if the code for this app was online, that doesn't mean that you see how that system is integrated with other systems within the government. You also need to realize that even if you hand the government information on a piece of paper, they can manually enter it into a system and they're holding it. Sure. So there there are a few risks that are relative and specific to people downloading this kind of an app on their phone or using something like this on on a browser on their home computer. Um, But for the most part, we really need to understand that it's difficult for us to see how this information is used. And I think that's why only having one federal privacy commissioner who is our general you know, oversight person is lacking because there's a significant amount of information here. And we're also dealing with a quarantine act. And I can tell you the one little piece of the quarantine act um, that is relative to this conversation. I keep bringing it up because it's it gets lost over over and over again. And it's it's a problem. Yeah. Tell me, what is it? 
What it is, is that, and there's a letter that the Federal Privacy Commissioner shared with shadow ministers in, I believe in 2020, where they were saying, do you have concerns with this app? And the commissioner, and I'm paraphrasing here, basically said, all of this is, you know, makes sense, makes sense. It's, you know, it goes with our Privacy Act. Everything here looks like it's in line. But then it gets to this point, because this is the Quarantine Act, which says there's also a point at which you don't have to receive consent from the person who shared the information to use it in ways that may relate back to the act, which may involve sharing with law enforcement or sharing it in ways that you may not know or have to be told about. Hmm. And so the privacy commissioner sort of hits this point after saying all of this seems fine, but also this is a quarantine act and this is why emergency powers are important to understand. There's a little clause in there that basically says, and, and he said, I can't tell you if I'm comfortable with how this is being used because I don't know. And I'm still having to learn about it. Now, the reason this is important is twofold. Firstly, that relates to the Quarantine Act. That's emergency power stuff, right? So as long as this app is being, that the rationale is under the Quarantine Act, that issue is there. Right. Um, that's not clear for any of us to understand what's really going on. But the really important thing is regardless of whether the information was collected from an app, from a web app, from a form, from a kiosk, it's the same vulnerability from a how is the government using the information perspective. So what I find difficult about the discourse right now is you're getting a lot of concerns about you know surveillance. And I would, I would classify some of this as the misinformation space where there's a whole lot of things that we don't know. You know, there's a sort of potential for harm. There's a potential for abuse. It's there. Mm -hmm. But that's one of those issues that's always there. What we have are actual harms. What's happened with the app um, to raise these concerns? Like, what are actual examples? Um, so there's a range of harm there that this is why to me it's so important that this is voluntary, which means we should all be comfortable when we use a public service. Hmm. That brings us back to the key principle of any defensible technology, informed consent. If you like this app, you understand the risks, and you understand all of what it is, and you're comfortable and you like it, that's great. Good for you. You, you take that on because it's an informed decision. There is a large number of people who do not feel that way. And that's why you can't make these kinds of public services a mandatory technology. So the lack of an other approach, you know, to be able to come to the airport or to whatever border, whichever way you get there, and to not have an option where you're comfortable, to me, this is bought far and away the worst harm because that harm translates into distrust. And this is also why looking at the trajectory of this, uh, the history of this, it's one thing when you start a program with the intent and you're using public health uh, rationale, we're well beyond that. And so I think that is not a technical harm, that's a democratic harm. So if you have to ask me what the number one harm is, to me, it's a trust issue. We need to have public services that work for everyone. And when the government decides that they're just gonna steamroll through, and ignore the fact that some people can't access, some people aren't comfortable. Um, I think that's really bad. And that decision was made quite a while ago. So to me, that's primary harm. Secondary and not inconsequential by any means 
Over 10,000 people received an automated notice that they had to quarantine and it was wrong. And I saw people online, some people saying, oh, you know, you just got to look it up. Of course, it's, it's a known, known issue. You know, it's, <laughs> there's a bug. How didn't you know? And I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, can you imagine how many people would get a notice like that and not take it seriously? Like to me, this is very dangerous when you're sending notices out that are about something as important as a quarantine mm -hmm. and to automate that sort of a communication from the federal government and to not have it be proactively managed. Um, that, that story came out because people were getting in touch, filing ATIPs. Matt Malone um, filed an access to information request, basically saying, how many people had this problem happen? It wasn't like the government came out and proactively was managing it. <laughs> For me, it's very difficult to believe that the government ever thought automating that kind of a notice was a good idea. Because when you work with technology, there's one thing you know, it will not work all the time. Yeah. It will not always work as expected. And so you have to build really good governance around um, when things go wrong. And the federal government hasn't displayed any sort of uh, capacity to do that well. So that actual harm of sending out an error notice, and I'd say the higher order one of people being uncomfortable in a time when they didn't have to be and the government should have had alternative public service provision. Those are two major serious harms um, from a democratic technology perspective. Right. Those don't have to do with the what ifs. Like those both happened. So let's talk about what happens now and the evolution of this app, because this really makes me curious. As I mentioned earlier, I'm inclined to cut slack for the first year or so when we're still in a clear, clear emergency. Who made the call? And, and I don't recall seeing it discussed anywhere to move this app from just, yes, you must use it under the Quarantine Act because COVID regulations to... Now we're going to streamline your border process and you still have to use it. Like, was there ever a decision made there? Was there ever any public consultation, consultation with the Privacy Commissioner? I don't even know what I'm asking now. It just seems like it just happened. So nothing that I saw um, in terms of being explicit about it, um, being consultative, this is referred to sometimes as the ratchet. You know, for some people, they would say, oh, of course, in a crisis, you're going to accelerate technology use. And it's, I always, it always struck me as, I don't want to say it's cynical, but um, in this instance, it's it really difficult to believe that the government would go from that public health rationale where, you know, people are doing this because they're trying to do collective good to, oh, opportune, opportune moment to modernize the border. I know that um, there was reporting when the website copy switched, you know, like that's the kind of subtlety that indicated that the language of border modernization was creeping into the ArriveCan conversation. So nothing explicit. You started to hear more from, I believe, the Canada Border Services Agency and like the public safety. I haven't tracked it all the way from the beginning, but if you if you look at who's speaking to this now, you're hearing a lot about the border, right? So nothing clear and explicit about that shift. But what's interesting is that it was the Public Health Agency of Canada that really was the leader on we need to make a mandatory technology, as far as I have been told. So if that's where this comes from, and now it's shifted over to the Canada Border Services Agency and the border modernization um, rationale, 
for me, this is very anti-democratic. I don't know a better way to describe it. It's like, if you want to do that, that's okay, but do it under the appropriate terms. You yeah. don't use a public health crisis as cover to accelerate and train people in a totally different initiative. And there are people that would probably want to do this if you gave them the option and said, like, look, this could make your border entry easier. You might not have to wait in line at customs, et cetera, et cetera. It's voluntary. Try it out. 100%. This is what some people really like it. And this gets back to why. And if, I, I keep going back to the privacy commissioners. It's basically the only entity that has a public oversight mandate. They said in 2020, if you want to make sure you have consent and trust from people, you make technology voluntary when mm -hmm. you're in a public health crisis. That's the way to do it. And I think at this point in time, I'm just looking at the federal government in this sort of disbelief where I'm saying like, this is feeling so unnecessary because it's not to say that the app has to go away. This is just saying, make it voluntary. So if people are happy and comfortable using it, good. We can talk about improvements to governance. There's just some very clear things that they can do, but have alternatives. Like this isn't this isn't saying all or nothing. This is just saying just stop making it mandatory. There's so many people who are uncomfortable. And so September 30th is the next point in time where the uh, Quarantine Act would have to basically be re-upped as the rationale for the app. So to me, September 30th, it will be the perfect time to end the mandatory use and they can shift it to voluntary and perhaps it will move under the Canada Border Services Agency sort of rationale and go live over there rather than keeping it tangled up in, in this public health uh, crisis rationale. That was going to be my last question is what's the next deadline? I guess it's September 30th. Do we have any knowledge, any hints from anyone in government if that act will be renewed? We can't, uh, we can't keep doing this forever. No, I don't know what's going to happen on September 30th. I can tell you two things about this. One, um, the budget for this app is now at $46.4 million. So the, the, I think what I see mostly published was from the last budget, which had it at 25. So it's almost got double the amount of money allocated. Huh. And the completion date is slated for September 2023. So what that tells us is there's, you know, basically a doubling of the budget. And this app will be worked on until, what is that? It's almost a year out. So that helps us understand the trajectory. So it's not going away in September. No, it's not going away in September. And I think this is what is up to us from a democratic perspective is to say, at what point does this move to where it, where it lives and how it is really being treated, which is border modernization. And you decouple it from anything to do with the pandemic. Whether this is voluntary and this continues to live on, we need to consider what was good about the COVID alert governance, which basically had open code, it had an advisory, it had a sense of reporting to the public, you know, it had oversight. These are things that the federal government can improve on. So if they're going to keep this app and then also address these issues, because even if this app is voluntary, we don't want it sending out erroneous notices. Mm -hmm. So that's one major sort of course that we need to follow um, as we seek to get this use to voluntary. And then the second thing, just for all of us to understand, we don't want mandatory technology as part of our public service. We just don't. Like the, the legal terms to think about here, which I've brought up, are necessity and proportionality. If you're going to make a technology mandatory, you better have a really damn good reason for it. And it has to work. It has to do what it's intended to do. 
And you have to take that really seriously. And I think just to close on your point, it's one thing to try something out or to think, hey, let's give it a shot, you know, bring it into operations, see how it works. But this sort of failure to adapt to and address the fact that we're in the seventh wave of a pandemic and no one is really acknowledging that we've dropped so many interventions that we know work, but we're digging in this hard on this mandatory technology. Like it, it does not hold. It doesn't hold on a public health rationale. It does not hold from a good governance rationale. It's, it's not democratic. And I think the longer that we sort of refuse to, to come to the reality here, the more harm that, that happens. It keeps happening because this is a really bad situation for trust. So in the future, the lesson here, even on experimentation, you can set up guardrails that would have avoided some of this to make sure you have reporting, efficacy metrics, oversight, all of that. But we really need to know we do not want mandatory technology. We need to always invest in alternatives, you know, redundancy, infrastructure people are comfortable with, not take it on as private activity. Because once you start bringing public services into your phone and into your house and you're doing that labor, um, you're taking on new risks. And we don't I, I just don't think we understand these aren't consumer apps. This is a public service. This has to do with our rights, you know, so we should be very careful. Um, that this doesn't set a precedent that we're okay with mandatory technology. That's not something we want to do. We always want to have at least two ways to do everything. And we need to up the investment in our public services so we're happy with them, you know, and invest in people and invest in, in good service. Bianca, thank you so much for this. Really informative. Thank you so much, Jordan. It was a pleasure. Bianca Wiley of Digital Public and Tech Reset Canada. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to thebigstorypodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. Email us at hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca or leave us a voicemail, 416-935-5935. Find us in every podcast app. Ask for us on any smart speaker. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.